This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and welcome to Talking TV. Yes, we're back to flush out any January blues with a tide of top telly chat. On the podcast this week, we take a trip to Benefit Street as Channel 4's documentaries boss Nick Mursky joins us to unpick the controversy surrounding the welfare series. Also on the show, you will know him as The Fonz, but Henry Winkler has also written a series of children's books which have now been adapted by CBBC. Executive producer Anne Brogan tells us how the series was given the thumbs up. And finally, we preview BBC Two's The Great Interior Design Challenge and reflect on BBC One's new physical game show, Reflex. That's all coming up. Joining me in the studio are broadcast editor Lisa Campbell and Stephen D. Wright, the creative director of WizKid Entertainment. How are you doing, guys? Great, thank you. You well? <laughs> it feels. It, I was going to ask, did you have a good Christmas? But that feels like feels uh, like forever yeah, ago. It feels yes. like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? We're in the January lull now, but yeah. we're, we're trying to be upbeat and optimistic. What was your favourite show over the festive period? Probably, oh god, I like Vicious on ITV. Uh, but really, and I still think it counts, is the beginning of Sherlock. That felt like the real treat to me. Yeah, it was even big, though everyone slagged it? it off in you know week two, mm. but I loved it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that the everyone was saying how amazing the finale was because I was quite disappointed by the first step, but I'm I'm really glad it sort of got back on form for the for the last one. The finale so. was brilliant, mm. and uh, I think it's difficult. It's easy to lose sight of how much craft goes into that show. I think. Yeah, oh, it's incredible. Production values is just stunning, isn't it? Let's move on to our first item, shall we? Given it's uh, it's been quite hard to ignore over the past couple of weeks. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Benefit Street. Uh, Channel 4's biggest show in more than a year has captured the zeitgeist by framing an increasingly vociferous debate about the welfare system. But it has an army of detractors. More than 40,000 people have signed an online petition calling for the Love Production show to be axed, while politicians and opinion formers have condemned its portrayal of people on benefits. Uh, joining us now is Channel 4's head of documentaries, Nick Mursky. Welcome, Nick. Uh, hello. You well? Yeah, I'm well. <laughs> Reveling in the in the hysteria, or is it is it been a difficult you, couple of weeks? Do you know what what I feel pleased about is I think it's a really well made series, well made programs about a, about an important subject, and it's brought a big audience to that. I feel quite proud of the programs, and I think they've uh, they've engaged the public like no series for quite some time. Were you expecting this level of controversy when you commissioned it? You, you never come into the office thinking there'll be five million viewers for last night's programs. You never come. <laughs> you never come into the office thinking that. But we knew it was an important subject. It was commissioned because it was an important subject, and it was an important time to be covering this subject. It's a time when the benefits are being cut and the nation is bothered about benefits and engaged by that. And it felt the right time to be putting the programme on. Yeah, I mean, some people might say that you would have been aware of uh, the bait it would have stirred, uh, given that this is such a big topic at the moment. And it, it was quite a cynical commission as a result of that. I, I would absolutely dispute that it was a cynical commission. This is a commission about the community on James Turner Street, most of whom have been on benefits for some time, in an area where unemployment is very high. We've got to, as documentaries, look into those worlds and tell the stories of people in those worlds. That That's not cynical. That's actually looking at society and making programmes with and giving voice to 
people who don't have the same employment prospects as people in other parts of the country. Tell us about how the series came about then, because it's been knocking around for a little while, hasn't it? A couple of years or so, is that, the, is that right? The team have been on it, certainly, certainly approaching a couple of years, the team have been working with the community on, on James Turner Street. Most of the filming really happened over the last year. Mm. Uh, but this isn't something where the team have dived in and very quickly got a few sound bites or a few clicks. It's a series of films made by engaging with that community in, in a sort of long-term way. And that is why the programmes are as good and as strong as they are, because when you watch them, there is material that can only be there because the people making the programmes have engaged with the community over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, are you comfortable that this is an entirely fair and representative portrayal of benefits in the UK, oh, of life two, on benefits Two things. In the UK. I think it's a fair portrayal of the story of that street and the people who took part in it on that street. But you wouldn't... But, you can't uh, say it's... Rep- you know, no one programme about benefits can be representative of everyone and everything. But what it is, is a fair and honest account of last year on James Turner Street with the people who are the central characters in that, in, in that series. We're not claiming it's absolutely neatly representative of, of everyone on benefits. Also, actually, as you as you go further into the series, it, there are people who there are people who are in work. Not everybody is on benefits, but it is about that community where the opportunities for work are much slighter than in other parts of the country. Having seen the reaction to the first episode, I think it's been reported. I think Ralph Lee's also said that you did make changes to the second. What what were those changes? Oh. What why why did you react? No, we always do when you're making documentaries. In many ways, it's a collaboration, or you're working with a community. And therefore, you will always, not just in this project, but in all projects, you have viewings with contributors. And if there is something, if there are minor changes that in, in order to reflect their points of view or factual accuracy, uh, you make those changes. That We've not made major editorial changes at all, but we have made minor changes out of respect to the contributors. Was that a result of... Not a result of the press, no. no. As a result, if we've made changes, there is a result of viewings with contributors. But was that as a result of them watching the first episode and not agreeing with the way that they were portrayed? Uh, uh, there were viewings of the first episode. There were. We, we do this with all programs, not all programs, with many programs, with most programs. Programs are often viewed with a community that takes part in them, and we listen to what they say about the programs. We don't want people to be surprised when the program goes out. I, I would say minor changes. In a way, minor changes to make the story more accurate, yeah. but minor. I think the un- other interesting thing that's come out of it is, is the aftercare for contributors and something that Richard McCarrow at Love Productions has, has talked about as well. And I know you were at the Sheffield Doc Fest um, last year and it was it was very much you know one of the debates with filmmakers so conscious of social media and, and the impact that that can have. And I don't think anyone really had a very sort of an answer to this. I mean, it's it's a really difficult thing. And where does the money come from to, to for that aftercare? It's really interesting to raise, I think. And if the, I would say if you go back five years ago when we didn't have Twitter, it was a different thing. But we we are increasingly, with every show we do, we're having to prepare people for social media, for Twitter, for what will happen when the programme goes out. It's an increasing part of our job as documentary makers. I just want to go on a little bit because actually the duty of care is really, really important to us. And on this project, the team have been there and still are there and are there now with the community as the programmes go out. It's something that we do take really, really seriously. 
But you're right, Twitter has, has changed that and it means that we've got to give more thought and more time to that before programmes go out. And we have to prepare people for the fact that this, you know, that, that there will be these conversations. <laughs> and you've commissioned a live debate, so I'm sure there'll be more uh, conversation. Absolutely. Um, you, and presumably you'll be doing a bit more of this. Is it, are you looking at a second series? Do you know what? I think, we've, I think let's, let's get these programmes to air first, but we are doing the debate, you're right. But you wouldn't consider a second series. Do you know series. what? I mean, it's, Do you it's, know what? Without <laughs> let's let's get these programmes out. All right, I understand it. Thank you for joining us. I, re- I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, the third episode of Benefit Street airs on Monday at 9pm. Also on the agenda this week, uh, ITV's got feisty with the BBC. In a rare outburst uh, under Adam Crozier, the commercial broadcaster lampooned the BBC's copycat programming, its aggressive pursuit of ratings and its plans to launch a BBC One Plus One service. ITV also raised the spectre of topslizing the licence fee as charter renewal negotiations begin in earnest this year. It wasn't alone on this point either. Both Channel 4 and commercial broadcasting body COBA also suggested the BBC's funding could be put to use in new ways. Uh, Lisa, what did you make of this dust-up? It's inevitable in the run-up to charter renewal. I mean, we've, the BBC's been under attack from its own highly paid presenters and now it's just going to go to the to the outside world and there'll be, you know, top slicing is already back on the table it feels a bit like Groundhog Day. I mean, we, in fact, ironically, James Pennell, who is, of course, now at the BBC and is going to be fighting hard to um, maintain the licence fee as it is, back in 2008, when he was Culture Secretary, um, he put top slicing back on the table at the Oxford Media Convention using the old not ruling it out shorthand for suggesting, you know, definitely back in. <laughs> you know, I He's think, made a rod for his own back. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's going to be difficult for him, given, given his background, actually. But the whole concept concept of it it's complex and and of course it's it's going to have to be properly debated and it's going to have to be debated not with the interests of broadcasters in mind BBC ITV whoever but the interests of of the audience and and you know that's the important thing but there's a whole load of complexity around it you know the administration of it the redistribution of it the accountability i mean if if ITV wants some of the license fee are they also going to be prepared to be under the same kind of scrutiny as the BBC you know how much they earn their expenses no more not. no more croissants you know <laughs> yeah. whatever Stephen do you relish this kind of debate or do you shudder when the Sizic questions are raised about the BBC. I do both. I relish the debate and I love to see people giving the BBC a kicking and all the rest of it. When it's ITV giving BBC a kicking, I shudder because then it becomes a bit like, oh, here we go. And it's, you know, it becomes like, you know, people bitching and, you know, everybody wants the BBC to be better. Everybody wants ITV to be better. So, you know, it's it's kind of win-win to hear it. It's a great argument to say if you're a politician. It sounds a bit like sour grapes for ITV to be sort of nominating it. But to me, it's one of those things that comes down to will we sort of blame the BBC at all? Because I think there's more chance of something like this being done as a kind of punitive measure because of, say, the Jimmy Savile affair or the Newsnight, whatever, mm. you know, rather than the quality argument. Do you know what I mean? Because the quality yeah. argument could have been used any time in the last 20 years. And it's you that know, slippery slope always, idea, isn't it? As programme makers always says the BBC should be making, you know, shows just for quality and not thinking about ratings and blah, 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 blah. But no one seems to live in that world in the BBC. So, Do you disagree with that? Do you think the BBC, you know, should be broad? Oh, I, you know, the BBC you know, is the only place that can take risks, you know, because it's not a commercial broadcaster. So the commercial broadcasters have a point. You know, they always have the same point, though. You know, the BBC's got loads of money. We haven't got, we've got to earn our money. The BBC gets given it, da 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 da, da. But this is the same old, same old. But whether or not there's, there's an anti-BBC feeling, has the BBC been weakened, I think is a more important thing, because I think that will have more kind of weight in this argument 
actually coming towards Charter Renewal than before. You know, before the BBC was always relatively unsullied. You know, it might have wasted money on, on an expensive show or done something you thought was a bit boring. But the BBC is, you know, blue chip, standard, gold, TV, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But now you've got these, these little sort of uh, holes where, you know, the sort of the overpaid, you know, presenters, the so-so. And these things right now in a kind of recessionary Britain are kind are of, important you know, issues. they're juicy yeah. subjects. And yeah. So is there going to be a sort of anti-BBC, you know, is this the final weapon to beat the BBC? So do you think the BBC is vulnerable, Lisa? I don't know. I imagine the, the settlement will be flat. I, I, it's a slippery slope. It's dangerous. I, I think everybody will be very conscious about that weakening the BBC. And there's also, the BBC isn't just about making programmes. It, it has but the public purposes and that's part of its you know remit from parliament so that's about educational initiatives i mean things like the coding thing that we're we're going to be seeing from them um you know bringing the uk to the world and the world to the uk you know all of those things which you really want to preserve and you're, you're in danger of weakening by by top slicing i'm sure this debate has got a lot more life in it yet uh, thanks guys that's your news for this episode my gratitude to lisa and stephen uh, as well as nick mersky Next up, it's not every day that the BBC announces it is working with the star of a hit 1970s American sitcom to produce a new children's series. But that's exactly what happened in September last year when CBBC teamed up with Happy Days actor Henry Winkler. The channel was commissioned a 13-part drama based on Winkler's series of children's books featuring Hank Zipser, a dyslexic boy who has a unique approach to life. Fast and funny, the show combines live-action scenes with cartoonish animation and is produced by DHX Media, Walker Productions and Kindle Entertainment. Anne Brogan, the executive producer and Kindle's joint director, will join us in a minute. But first, here's Henry Winkler's schoolteacher, Mr Rock, preparing for a dressing down from the headmaster. Hey, Mr Z, there should be an indentation of your tush in that chair by now. What are you in for? Flooding the school. Hmm. You? Playing the electric guitar in class. But you're a music teacher. Go figure. You know, I thought I would show the class what it was like when I played Berlin and they were bringing down that wall and I cranked up the volume. And I cracked a few windows and I blew out the speakers and I rendered class 3B temporarily deaf. Hey. Sounds like a great lesson. You know, it really was. Um, Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, why don't we start at the beginning? How did the series all come about? Well, I think it was a, about four years ago now when I heard Henry Winkler talk at the um, CMC Children's Media Conference in Sheffield. And he read a little bit from the Hank Sipser books. And he also talked about how important it was to make every kid feel that they can achieve something in their lives. So I really engaged with the character of Hank because what he offers is two things, a really funny character and a really truthful character. He has challenges in his life, but he overcomes those challenges and his attitude is what makes him really funny. So I felt that every kid could connect with Hank, whether they're a high-achieving kid or a kid who struggles, because every kid at some point in their lives has something that they have to overcome. So how did you go from hearing Henry speak to making the approach and, and, and pulling the project together. Yeah, well, that that was a, a long journey because from the moment I wanted to do it, I decided that I would 
absolutely pursue getting the rights to these books. And initially, Walker Books, who publish Hank Zipser in the UK, didn't actually own the television rights. And they similarly felt, as I did, that this was a show that should be brought to UK screens. And so they entered a long period of negotiation. I think it took them almost two years um, to uh, obtain the television rights. Helen McAleer, who runs Walker Books, has a really good relationship with Henry, partly through publishing the books in the UK and through uh, her relationship with um, Nikki, who runs First News, the newspaper that goes out to over a million kids in the UK. So both Helen and Nikki had a, a relationship with Henry that convinced him that they would be able to turn these books into something special. And I managed to convince Helen that Kindle Entertainment were the company the right that company Walker to Books do it with. should partner with. <laughs> I mean, I was really passionate about making these shows because I just knew I knew that they had the perfect ingredients that would make them compelling and funny for a kid audience and also bring in adults as well because the, the depth of the characterisation and the storytelling is something that adults will respond to as yeah. well as kids. It works on two levels. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. It, it, this is clearly something that Henry's quite passionate about. How involved was he in the adaptation process? Yeah, well, Henry is very, very passionate about all kids achieving and he does a lot of work in the UK for an organisation called Achievement for All who work with kids throughout the UK in schools, not just kids who are dyslexic, but kids who have any kind of learning challenge. So that goal is very, very close to his heart. And the character of Hank is obviously very close to his heart as well, because Hank is him. Hank is him, age 12, with all of the difficulties he had in school and all of the problems when his parents were really disappointed, disappointed that they didn't have a son who was high achieving academically. They didn't have a son who was going to be in the baseball team. So his heart and soul has gone into those books and he he really wanted to be sure that the people who brought them to the screen understood what went into them from his point of view and would be able to bring that into a television adaptation. Was it always the intention that he would uh, star and feature in some way? It was always our hope. Um, <laughs> and and to be fair to Henry, he had always said that you know he'd be interested in doing that. But yeah. I think it certainly he wouldn't have done it if the quality of the writing um, hadn't been so superb. He he really needed to feel that the character he was playing was a character that he'd be proud of playing. Absolutely. And the books themselves, they're based in New York City, is that right? That's uh, right, yeah. So was, was that a challenge to translate them for, for a UK audience? I, I wouldn't say it was really that challenging because the heart of the stories remain absolutely identical. The setting and the cultural references are really the clothing for the stories. And I think for me, when I just became convinced that London was the place that we had to set these stories because because London is the at least the equivalent of New York, and London is such an exciting, vibrant, multi-ethnic, multicultural city. And for me, the thrill of being able to create a show that had all of the qualities that contemporary London and kids' experience of living in contemporary London has was so exciting that it didn't feel like a challenge. It felt
felt more like an opportunity. Just to talk about the, the, the minutiae behind that project, I guess. I mean, you have DHX Media on board, which of course now owns Ragdoll, while Walker Productions is the production arm of the publishing company. And Screen Yorkshire are also involved, aren't they? Is it a bit of a nightmare pulling the finance together for these projects? Well, put, putting the finance together for a drama is always a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> I think, you know, the, there's no two ways about it. It's, it has <laughs> ever been thus. And, and it is really, really, really challenging making that budget work because I think, you know, when anyone looks at the show, they'll see the production values are really great and the cast, particularly the adult cast, are absolutely superb. The kid cast are also superb in, in, a, in a different way. So funding a show that has those kind of aspirations is really tough. But all of the partners were fantastic partners to work with. And I know people often say that when they're interviewed and it's, that isn't the truth <laughs> oh, behind the scene. But they actually are. And presumably, given Henry's involvement, you're quite hopeful that it'll be attractive internationally. Yes. We thought about that from the very beginning. I mean, we set out to tell stories that would play internationally and we had one eye on that throughout the production Have process. you had any sales yet? Um, uh, I believe there are a couple in the pipeline, um, <laughs> which considering that so far there's only been the trailer for potential buyers to yeah. see is, is pretty good. We've only started delivering episodes a week ago. We'll leave it there for now. I wish you all the best with the series. I hope it goes well. Uh, Hank Zipser launches on CBBC on the 28th of January. Finally this episode, Lisa and Stephen are back with me to cast a critical gaze over some new television shows. First up, we're breaking the rules slightly, given it's already on air, but we couldn't resist featuring BBC One's new Saturday night entertainment format, Reflex. The objective production show has been knocking around for some time. It was originally developed for Channel 4 in 2011, but following a rejection, it was taken to BBC One, where Jake Humphreys fronted a pilot in 2012. One BT Sport deal and some format fiddling later, and Reflex was finally commissioned for a full series, with Shane Ritchie hosting and Radio 2's Ken Bruce commentating. Testing the reactions of contestants as they negotiate physical and mental challenges, here's a round from the first episode where two grown men hurl themselves through glass in super slow motion. And they're off, like horses through a trap, except this time it's like two dads through a window. Two men, two sheets of glass, only one button. The following scenes contain images that some viewers may find distressing, especially if you're a glazier. Kids, don't try this at home. Mum will be angry. That looks quite nice, actually. Both flying through that window in absolute unison. It's like a synchronised dive. In fact, let's stop and look at this again, see who did actually get through that window first. Oh, look, it's Tyrone! By just two hundredths of a second. But that's impossible to see at normal speed. Stephen, you like a new entertainment format. Uh, did this get the thumbs up? It did, mainly on looks and style. I thought it looked amazing. It looked really mm. cool, really stylish. I loved the slow-mo. But on an entertainment basis, as in, you know, did it entertain me, the bits did, the rest didn't. You know what I mean? Like The, the, the challenges did, but... The, the little the, challenges the, were great. But my problem from, from with it were twofold. were mainly the sort of pace thing, because it took a long time to get going, and then it dipped... Then it got going, then it dipped, then it got going, then it dipped. And, and basically, that I think is possibly intrinsic with the way they make the thing because you have to wait for a photo finish. 
you know, so you can't sort of, you know, punch the air going, I just won, because it took 10 minutes to find out you didn't, because they had to slow-mo it and blah, blah, blah. But, but I mean, that's me being very niggly. You know, the, the main objection I have, of course, is Ken Bruce's voice. <laughs> because the show is super cool, incredibly stylish. I mean, really cool. It's mm. one of the most stylish shows I've probably seen. It did look um, amazing. It really, you know, mm. really did. I mean, it didn't look cheap. It didn't look, you know, it, it you know, genuinely wow. And then you've got Ken Bruce sort of wittering on. And, and that, I found a little bit, a bit of a clash. And I think if I watch it again, which I probably will, because it was a big hit, and it did, it did sort of, it was good. It was good. It was a good show. You know, it's such a sexy studio, such a sexy show. And then you've got Ken Bruce. Like, oh. <laughs> it felt like they needed to rein him in a bit. He was, he was just a little too much. He drunk too many coffees. Yeah. yeah, I quite liked him though. I, it, it, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> But that's he it. he I mean, made me laugh. He made he made my kids laugh too, yeah. and they they absolutely loved it. I think it was you know they like Wipeout, and it's sort of Wipeout on acid, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> and so I think for that sort of noisy family viewing, you know, it's absolutely perfect. I loved. Um, I think it was Stuart Dredge in the Guardian who described it as uh, Inception directed by Christopher Biggins, uh, <laughs> and that one. it was all I mean you know a, a bit stomach turning at times, and um, and I think he said he's going to call it Reflux rather than Reflex. Yeah. And he got a massive headache from it, but I agree. I thought it looked amazing. Um, when the glass broke and they did it looked fantastic I agree on the pacing and sort of mm. you know you, you lose interest here and there but I mean, uh, you notice they didn't really show the audience mm. you know there was a studio audience in there yeah, it was like, lacking you know, keeping that, the pace it? of a, yeah. or the energy up when you're yeah. recording a show when yeah. you have to reset and sit about and wait yeah. and all that it's tough on a, on a normal show and that is a particularly technically difficult show to do. So, mm. did the, Shane Ritchie not manage that? Do you think? I mean, it felt like he well, was trying I mean, hard. Some of the some to, of those bursts, you know, of of lack of energy, that you know, is, is were fifteen minutes or so. So it's like, you know, I mean, that is tough. So it's a really tough show to to make feel like it's all happening at the same time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It, it sort of it lost it lost energy when the the contestants are talking. Oh, who's going to take part? You sort of don't care. They, they yeah. the kind first of need time to do you something else at that point. Kind bit. of who's going to go for it? The that was great. And then after the second or third, you're like, okay, we you know we know it's going to be one of you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Of you. Yeah. But that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's as a general thing. Wow, it was an mm. amazing show and a really good commission, and it played really well where it was. Yeah, it didn't quite, feel like it was a Channel Four show that was somehow on. On BBC One, do you know mm. what I mean? It actually felt like, oh, it's quite a cool show, yeah. and the kids can get into it, and da da da. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone's breaking windows now, of course. Yeah. So, you know. and a game about speed in slow motion is is you know, so it's a great concept, isn't it? It does feel really original. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It Thumbs does. up, I think. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it started with just over three million. I think maybe a bit more than that. So, uh, I'm sure the BBC will be hoping it continues along those lines, yeah. which it does next week on BBC One at six fifteen p.m. Our final preview this episode is BBC Two's The Great Interior Design Challenge. Built by some as the new changing rooms, brave homeowners open their doors to amateur interior designers who set about redesigning one of their living spaces. To progress through the 12-part Studio Lambert competition, the designers must impress their homeowners and two judges, award-winning architect Daniel Hopwood and Sophie Robinson, the former editor of BBC Good Homes. Uh, here's one designer, Helen, displaying palpable relief at rejuvenating a dog's dinner of a fireplace in the first episode. To make the most of where the fireplace would have been, Helen has cleverly used wood from the old wardrobe to create a new surround. Oh my God, that's gorgeous, Stuart. <laughs> She's clearly pleased with the results. <gasps> oh! Boom. Yay, Stuart! Actually, not too bad, is it? <laughs> Ooh, delicious. That's probably the funniest moment of the whole episode. Uh, Lisa, what did you what did you uh, what did you make of this one? 
Uh, I think that made it sound funnier and better and more in- more entertaining than it is actually. I found it just a bit sedentary, a bit a bit gentle and actually was it Helen she we had there she was yes, um, the best you know sort of personality wise I think it was it's sort of lacking personalities I mean I was missing after a while Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen flouncing around or that uh, what were the pair on Channel 5 Justin and you know saying I'm going to dress the room and he'd just plonk a vase in the middle it it sort of lacked a bit of personality I think yeah it was a bit dry um, and it felt like is it that new? I mean, I you know I love interior designs. I'm one of those pumpsy middle class people that sort of goes, "Ooh, I love your architrave," but it it was a bit sort of I've seen it all before. It's it, it, you know it's it, the same as the last interior design competition show and the one before that. Mm. I it, like the know, way they put some you know social history and you got a bit of background yeah, about Muswell Hill and Alexander yeah, Pass I mean, and the and the guy that did the uh, carvings of his own face outside his front door that was amusing. Made me think of you actually, Stephen. I thought you probably have that out <laughs> in your place in Deal, don't you? Is that really? outside uh, D Wright Manners? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have a you know a, a whole a full tapestry of uh, my life in television so far, um, but no, I mean it was it was a good show. It was very watchable, but it didn't set the world alight. I mean, it doesn't. Uh, it, there was no sort of. I didn't watch that and think, wow, that's why they've done this show. That's the new twist, mm. the new format, the new whatever. It did feel like a really well made, nice to watch show. It taught me a little bit, not much, but because mm. I've seen all these things before. Do you know what I mean? So. It, it did feel a bit, why, we, why is BBC yeah. doing this? Do you what know did you right? make of Tom Dykoff, the presenter? He was very kind of up and jolly, and I quite liked the, the judges. I thought the, the kind of slightly pain in the ass guy with the glasses was mm. good. Yeah. And she and I thought she was very good as they well. They worked so well together. They, they were well cast. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I did enjoy it, yeah. but, you know, for the purposes of being a professional critique, I was a bit like, well... <laughs> do you think it could have been shorter, Lisa? Yes, I do, actually, yeah. I think it could have been 45 minutes, half an hour, yeah. Half an hour could have been great. I mean, the the thing about interior design shows is it's all about the revelation at the end. Mm. Yeah. So... You wait it's a, a long, long time for long that, you know. So Lisa's right by saying, you know, you miss the tricksiness of changing rooms and everything else. I mean, you know, saying it's the new changing rooms made me think I could still watch changing rooms. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it good. still works. It's, it does. And it also, does go. The, the reveals were, were quite dull, really. You know, in, in, in fact, what they'd achieved with the rooms, I mean, you, you sort of wanted a bit of a disaster or something, didn't you? Something garish well, or something, I mean, you know. This, this is, you know, these are proper, and... these people aren't going to make a complete no. pig's eye of it, you know. Yeah. Which well, takes per, away, the, there was no jeopardy, was there, I think. You know, the, the most jeopardy we got was behind the wardrobe. Is there going to be a fireplace? Oh, spoiler yeah. alert! Of course not. You know, and and there's a gaping hole. I don't know. There just wasn't. And you know, the other jeopardy now. was: will she have time to upholster the chair? Yeah. The, you know, there was a bit of a disaster. Uh, I think with the when when I think it was Helen, wasn't she? Was yeah. when she was painting the headboard for the bed. And uh, they did the reveal, and it obviously been so terrible. She'd covered it in a sort of mountain of cushions, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was very amusing. And I mean, you know, I the judges did spot the errors. Yeah. You know what I mean, they did say I mean, it's not like it was uh, you know a, a total whitewash. You know, look at that. Why hasn't that been done? Anyone watching that would have learnt something, mm. but not necessarily been ruffling on the floor. Mm. You know? Yeah, indeed. And uh, just to just to note, it took thirty minutes for the first mention of MDF. <laughs> and stenciling which, which is changing rooms all over uh, <laughs> thanks very much guys the great interior design challenge launches on BBC2 next Monday at 7 o'clock uh, that's all we've got time for this week thank you to my guests Lisa and Stephen as well as Anne Brogan and Nick Mursky all that's left for me to do is to remind you that Talking TV is available on iTunes and SoundCloud if you've enjoyed what you've heard please go forth and spread the word. My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast. Talking TV. Recorded at Maple Street Studios.